after the brothers have already thrown Yosef into the pit, they stop to consider their options and eat some food. At which time Yehuda convinces them to sell Yosef into slavery to the Ishmaelim, who he has seen in the distance. And then at that moment, we read one of the most ambiguous and confounding psukim in the entire Torah. Perak Lamad Zayin Pasach Havches V'ya'avru anashim mijanim socharim Mijanite men. We had previously read about Yishmaelim. Now all of a sudden we have Mijanite who, men who are traitors. They're passing by. And they took Yosef out of the pit. Who's they? Is that the Mijanim we just heard about? Is that the brothers? Who took Yosef out of the pit? We continue. And they sold Yosef. Again, who's the they? And they sold him to the Yishmaelim. So we at least know that the sellers are not the Yishmaelim, but who are they? The brothers or the Mijanim? Bestrim Kesa for 20 silver pieces. V'yaviu es Yosef Mitzrayma. And they, our third they, they brought Yosef down to Egypt. So in one Pasuk we have mention of both the Mijanim and the Yishmaelim, and three ambiguous pronouns, three theys, with the brothers in the completely unmentioned in the Pasuk explicitly, but lurking in the background from the Priyipsukim. Who did what? What is going on? This confusion, this ambiguity is confounded a few psukim later when we read in the end of the parak, Vahamidjanim Machru Oso El Mitraim. Here the Pasak tells us that the Midjanim sold Yosef to Mitraim the Potifar Saris Paro Sar Hatabachim. It's not the Midjanim though, it's the Man the Midanim, excuse me, the Midanim. So we have the Midjanim and the Midanim. Sounds the same, it's a tongue twister, I even made a mistake myself, but is that the same people as the Midyanim? Are they different? It is spelled different, it is pronounced differently. Midyanim, Midanim. What is going on? And then to just round things out, if you pruck him later, in the beginning of Perak Lamites, uh, in the second half of our Parsha, we read, the Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma, Yosef had been brought down to Egypt, Vikneu Potifar Saris Paro, Sarapatavachim Ish Mitzri, that Potiphar bought him miyata Yishmaelim, asher horidu shama from the Yishmaelim who brought him down there. The Yishmaelim, I thought it was the Medanim or the Mijanim. So complete confusion. We have three different names of different uh, types of people: Mijanim, Yishmaelim, Medanim. We have three different ambiguously uh, described actions where they, they, they. We don't know what's going on. Complete and utter confusion really the likes of which are not commonly seen in the Torah. And this is not exactly a small matter. The story of selling Yosef, one of the most wrenching and controversial stories in the entire Torah, you would think at least the Torah could tell us who did what. The stakes are, exa- are quite high. And yet here we find such ambiguity. No surprise, therefore, that the classical Mepharshim debate seriously who did what and ultimately how many times and through how many hands was Yosef sold? Was he? How many pans did he pass through? So Rashi tells us in the opening pasuk that we began with, the initial ambiguous pasuk, the classical traditional understanding: the brothers sold Yosef into slavery. They were the ones who pulled him out of the pit. 
the they there referred to the brothers, they are the ones who sold him to the Ishmaelites, to the Ishmaelim, and it was only the Ishmaelim who sold him a second time to the Midianim, who then sold him a third time to the Egyptians. According to Rashi, it would emerge, I think, if I understood correctly, that Yosef was sold three times, from the brothers to the Ishmaelim to the Midianim, who then sold him to Potiphar and into Egypt. What about the Midanim? It sounds like from Rashi that those are actually the same as the Midianim. Why it's mentioned differently? Unclear. How do we understand that last pasuk in the beginning of Lamatet? Also unclear according to Rashi. But at least a basic narrative, if not all the details, we get from Rashi. That's the first traditional approach. The Ramban, however, has a different approach. And this is also echoed by the Sforno. He says that the Ishmaelim and the Midianim were actually one and the same. Not literally the same, but they were acting in concert. They had a partnership where the Yishmaelim were the camel drivers and did all the physical work, including actually physically bringing him down to Egypt. And the Midianim were the businessmen. They were the merchants. Thus, according to the Ramban and Sforno, uh, he wasn't sold three times, but actually only twice. First to this combined caravan partnership, and then by that partnership to Potiphar. The uh, Chizkuni has a different approach. He goes in the opposite direction. He actually says that Yosef was sold four times. First by the brothers to the Midianim while he was still in the pit. Then they took him out of the pit. The they means the Midianim against Rashi, against what we've seen until now. According to the Chizkuni, they mean the Midianim who had already bought Yosef took him out of the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelim who then subsequently resold him now a third time to the Midianim, and it was the Midianim, who are really the Midianim, it's all the same thing, who sold him to Potiphar. That would be four sales, getting him all the way down to Egypt. Last but not least, we have the radical pshat, the most mechudash and novel idea of the Rashbam, which actually it's not as well known, but it's also echoed by the Rabbeinu Bachaye. Rashbam says, Yosef's brothers, practically speaking, Lamaisa, were not involved in the sale. Yes, they planned on selling him to the Ishmaelim, who they saw in the distance. But while they were having their lunch break and not paying attention, the Midjanim came by, saw this boy in the pit, took him out, sold him to the Ishmaelim, and it's possible from the Rashbam's perspective that the brothers might not even have been aware exactly what happened. One thing led to another, and he winds up in Egypt. Really astounding, astounding psukim, a range of views, who did what, how many times was Yosef sold, and it's un- undoubtedly the case that the ambiguity of the Torah is coming to teach us one message. In the end, it doesn't really matter. The brothers and their poisonous relationship with Yosef were responsible for what happened to him, no matter how many hands he passed through, no matter who exactly did what. The story of Mechiras Yosef, the sale of Yosef by his brothers, is of course one of the biggest, most complex, controversial, and powerful stories in the entire Torah. However, not to be overlooked is the introductory pasuk. Ela told us Yaakov. These are the offsprings, the children of Yaakov. And with that somewhat surprising introduction, we immediately are launched into the story. Yosef ben Shvas Reishana, Yosef was 17 years old. He was Roe Esachav Batzon. He was also a shepherd like the brothers, Hunar, Esbene Bilhav, Esbene Zilpa, Nishay Aviv. And he was uh, kind of a kid and he hung out more with the children of the maidservants as opposed to the children of Leah, as Chazal detail, who felt that they were better than. 
the child of Rachel and the children of the maidservants. And then the Pasuk ends, Vayave Yosef as Diba Samra El Avihem. And Yosef would tattletale to his father about his brothers misbehaving. Took him then continue and tell us about how Yaakov favored Yosef. He loved him the most because he was a child of his old age. And then, of course, we go into the narrative where Yosef is sent on a mission to find his brothers and his brothers having had their jealousy aroused because of the various dreams uh, and in their minds, pretension to greatness and leadership espoused by their youngest brother, uh, their hatred and jealousy is triggered, and everyone knows, unfortunately, how the story goes from there. Question is, why start with that? Why does the whole story start with the words, Eile Toldos Yaakov. These are the offsprings of Yaakov. But moreover, it's not just a question of why, it's that if you're going to start with those uh, three kind of dramatic words, you know, Eile Toldos Yaakov, colon, you know, you would expect that then would be, if, if the translation, as I said before, was offspring, if that's correct, you would expect a list of all the various children. But we don't get that at all. And if it's going to tell stories about the children and their lives and what's going on in Yaakov's life, so why are we all of a sudden immediately just starting with this horrible story? There were no good stories, there were no good times. What's going on? And last but not least, a third and final question, which is, how does the beginning of Vayeshev connect back to the end of Parshas Vayishlach? What is the juxtaposition with the conclusion of Ayishlach, just a few psukim earlier, where we read all about the descendants of Esav, his various sons, and then grandsons and great-grandsons, etc., the succession of various generations, who's the leader, all of that, which is difficult to understand to begin with, what that's doing in the Torah. And then immediately it goes into the story of Yaakov's children, and specifically, Mechir's Yosef. How do we understand the story itself, the introduction of Eilat Todos Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvasrei, and what in the world does this have to do with Esav's descendants? So, in the Sefer Oznayim Torah, Rav Zalman Saratskin explains beautifully and powerfully. After all, he says, the list of Esav's descendants isn't just a list of their names and their children and their children's children, but we have repeatedly, over and over again, we are told that so-and-so died, and then someone else ended up becoming the king after him. Just to take one example randomly, etc. So-and-so, so-and-so died, someone else became the leader after him. Moreover, towards the end of the Parsha, we have aloof this, aloof that, this one was a general and a leader, this one was a general or a warrior and a leader. A whole emphasis, not only on the children and the descendants of Esav, but the leadership of the various generations. Says the Aznaim Torah, a person reading this at the end of last week's Parsha, it's reasonable to ask, why did Esau merit to have his children create legacies to achieve greatness, political might, military might, political success? Meanwhile, Yaakov's family is just schlepping along in the desert. How come Esau saw the fruition of his father's blessing so much sooner than Yaakov? And to that, the Torah answers, Eila told us Yaakov, Yosef. It's the Yosef story which explains everything. Not every great or mighty person is worthy or right for leadership. Esau's family says, the Aslan of the Torah, for all of their faults, 
they were unified. They were able to pick one brother and say, you are going to be our leader. We will follow you, even though they were not from the same mother. And nevertheless, there wasn't jealousy. They were able to pick one, follow him. And not only that, when that person established a kingdom, then there was an orderly succession from one generation to the next, lacking infighting and dissension. And not only once did it happen, but eight different times over all those generations, they had orderly succession without jealousy, without infighting. And yet when it comes to Yaakov's family, they were jealous of Yosef. They were divided. They hated him, even to the point of selling him and perhaps even being tempted to kill him. And the Torah goes out of its way to say that even Yosef himself was not so pure, as we mentioned that Yosef himself was a tattletale and would try to get his father to be aware of all the faults that he saw in his brothers. Moreover, says Zalman Zeratskin, the jealousy wasn't just Ruvain, who as firstborn, we could perhaps understand why he'd be jealous of Yosef's dreams of leadership. Okay, but what did the other brothers, why would they be jealous of Yosef? Did brother number four, or brother number five, or whoever, did, did they have any pretension of being the leader? Were they threatened by Yosef's dreams? And yet, all of them are jealous of him. After all, says Rav Zaman in this situation, leadership, continuity is impossible. How could people who hate each other, how could a nation, a house divided, how could it possibly hope to stand? Moreover, as he writes so beautifully, If everyone thinks that they're a king, who's going to accept someone else to be their leader? And therefore the result, says Zalman Sratskin, was only one thing. They had to be humbled by going down to Egypt. The poverty, the famine, the slavery, this humbled and purified them. Then and only then were they ready to accept the truth of Yosef's dreams, to recognize him as a leader, and only then could Yaakov's family take the next step in the fruition of the great blessings that would be their future. The opening of this week's Parsha describes Yaakov's safe return to Eretz Yisrael in the aftermath of the historic confrontation between him and Esau. In explaining how Yaakov was able to emerge unscathed from this perilous threat, the Medrash says that, like his children will ultimately follow in future generations, Kinuso the Kinus Bonov Hitzilu Miyad Esav. The simple understanding of this Medrash is that the key to success was that Yaakov, and subsequently his family as well, including many who didn't always get along with each other, Kinus, they came together, they were a unified group, and they davened to Hashem out of unity for their safety. A beautiful message, certainly underscoring the importance in general of achtus, of unity, and especially how it is a potent weapon whenever the Jewish people are under threat. We need to come together. However, the Svas Emes, in a beautiful drusha, suggests an alternate understanding of this medrash. It explains that it actually refers to the inner harmony that Yaakov achieved. Vayeshev, Yaakov was shav. Yaakov returned, as it were, to his true self. After many turbulent years spent battling against the influences of Lavan and Esav, Shechem, Yaakov was finally able to be mekanes, kinus, to gather together, to harmonize all of the different aspects of his personality. 
throughout these last few decades of his life with so many different and diverse challenges, each one calling on a different part of Yaakov's multifaceted personality. However, it was only after all of these years spent focusing on one or some other aspect of the personality, it was only now, says Esfas Emes, that Yaakov was able to be nityashev bisharasho. He was only able to return to his shoresh, to his core, to the essence of his true self. This understanding, this beautiful Hasidic interpretation of the Medrash, highlights the importance of inner or spiritual harmony, and conversely, the danger of alienation. There are many forms of alienation. From the community, a person can be alienated. God forbid a person can be alienated from his or her spouse, from children. But perhaps the most tragic is if a person is alienated from him or herself. Too often we allow external influences to create an artificial barrier between our actions and our essence. And instead of being true to ourselves, and allow, we allow other people's values, other people's expectations, to determine the course of our lives. An essential component of Odas Hashem, and life generally, is the ability to be, in the beautiful words of the Sfas Emes, Nityashev Bisharasho, to be genuine, to live a life of inner harmony, true to ourselves, anchored in our essence, in our own core, true with who we really are, consistent with our true selves. After years of being unable to do this, Yaakov was finally able to achieve this harmony, and thus saved from Esav. The Svasemes further develops this idea by suggesting creatively and ingeniously, in such a typical manner, he suggests that the word Vayeshev and the word Shabbos share common etymological link. They both share the letters Shin and Bet. Svasemes suggests ingeniously, originally, that in fact Vayeshev and Shabbos share this common etymological link. The deeper point, it seems, is that Shabbos is a uniquely opportune time for achieving this spiritual harmony that we've been talking about. Shabbos is an island in time which allows, perhaps even forces us, to retreat from the helter-skelter of daily life. By removing these external distractions, we have the opportunity to achieve what the Sfasemes eventually calls a bitl lahashoresh, an unimpeded return to the source, to the essence, to our core. Considering the potential, how tragic, how unfortunate would it be if we merely observe the technical requirements of Shabbos without taking advantage of this amazing, amazing gift. As in so many other areas of our religious life, Yaakov is our role model when it comes to living with spiritual harmony. Yaakov, according to the Kabbalistic and Midrashic tradition, is the personification of what's known as Tiferes, the ability to integrate all aspects of a life, his life. And based on this understanding of the Sfasemes, we see that that ability is what protected him from external threats such as Esav and also provided an inner blessing as well. May we all merit to live up to his exalted standard as well.
The story with Yehuda and Tamar is, of course, one of the most incredible and fascinating and even shocking stories, not only in the Parsha and Sefer Bracious, but really in the entire Torah. And the climax of the story, as Tamar is near death, she's about to be executed by the Bastin that has found her guilty of being unfaithful. And then at the last moment, having demonstrated that she has the personal possessions of the person who she had been intimate with, who had been, who is the father of her unborn children, Yehuda notices and recognizes these garments, these personal effects as being his, and rather than letting her go to her death, he acknowledges publicly and in front of everyone that in fact she is more righteous than he, he is in fact the father of the children, she did nothing wrong, her life is spared, shortly thereafter she gives birth to not only a child, but in fact twins. Commenting on this pasuk, Chazal, both in the Bracious Rabbah and in the Yalkut Shimoni, connect this episode specifically to the brachos that Yehuda receives at the end of Sefer Bracious when his father Yaakov was on his deathbed. At which time, in Perak Memtes, Pasuches, in Vayechi, we read that Yehuda is told, Ata Yoducha Achecha. One day, Yaakov says, your brothers will specifically acknowledge you in a special way. They'll understand what makes you so special and so great. And Chazal, commenting on this, explained why was Yehuda deserving of such a special blessing, this particular blessing, says the Medrash, Specifically because Yehuda admitted, he was he admitted his mistake, he said to Tamar, that's why he eventually not only gets this bracha from his father, but as the Medrash continues, that's why the Jewish monarchy stems from Sheva Yehuda. That's why he was so prominent, victorious as a uh, warrior. And in this world and in the next, says the Medrash, Yehuda was deserving of a very special reward. In fact, the Aramaic Targum Yonasan on that Pasuk in Vayichi says that Yehuda, because you were Odisa al-Uvda de Tamar, because you acknowledged your role, you admitted your mistake, begin Cain. Because of that, therefore, Yehudin achar itkrun, Yehudin al-Shmecha. In fact, the Jewish people for all history are called Jews, or Yehudim, because of Yehuda. So he got incredible reward, and as the Targum says, just like the Medrash says, it all goes back to the episode in which he basically acted inappropriately and with indiscretion to some extent, but nevertheless, because he admitted his mistake, therefore, he gets these incredible rewards. Two of the great Muslim masters of the earlier part of the 20th century, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, and before him, Rav Leib Chasman, both more or less asked the same question. What was so impressive about what Yehuda did? Should he have let an innocent woman and her unborn children die at the stake for no reason? Basically, Yehuda did the only halfway decent thing he could have done. You know, maybe it's more accurate to say Yehuda wasn't a complete lout. He didn't let an innocent woman die. He actually stepped in and did the decent thing and admitted that, in fact, he was the father. Okay, Shekoach, it could have been much worse. But does being halfway decent, the saving an innocent woman from death, because you admitted your complicity, does that make you deserving of reward? Is that why he merits incredible reward in this world and in the next? The Jews for all eternity are called Yehudim because of him? I mean, it seems like a decent thing to do. The only thing he could have done that was decent. But why is he all of a sudden deserving of such respect for doing something that was basically minimally decent? And both of these great 
Musr masters explain with a deep insight into human nature. And they point out that human nature is such that even good people, if they realize they made a mistake, try to undo that mistake before any ramifications arise. And even if they're too late and there were ramifications, they try to correct those problems, but always in as quiet and a hidden way as possible. And there are good and multiple rationalizations for that, some of which may even have merit. They say to themselves, what good will come from publicizing my mistakes? It could be Echil Hashem, etc., etc. However, they both point out, if we really think about it more carefully, more we probe more deeply and we're more honest and insightful about this, really the reason that people want to keep their mistakes private is to protect their own dignity, to protect their own kavod, and not to have to admit publicly in any way that, made a, that they made a mistake. It's ultimately very selfish and about self-preservation. In fact, they point out, Yehuda could have done something just like that. He was the leader. He was the judge, and even when he realized that it was his clothing, his personal effects, that he was the father and that Tamar was innocent, he could have done the quote-unquote decent thing and made sure she didn't die, but he didn't have to go all the way as to admitting his role in public. He was the judge. He was in charge. He was the Gadol Hador. He could have rigged or in some way manipulated the legal system and the court case such that she got off on a technicality or something like that. He didn't have to publicly say Tzad Kamimeni and admit his role. But in fact, that's exactly what Yehuda did. He was modeh al ms He did it right away, and he did it in public, and he admitted the truth. He admitted his mistake. And this goes totally against human nature, to the extent that they point out it's almost a miracle. After all, as the Mishnah says, HaMeseches Nagayim, Kala Nagayim Adam Roeh, Chutzmei Nigei Atzmo. We're all fantastic at seeing other people's faults, seeing where other people are wrong. But to see our own faults, to see where we ourselves are wrong, that is much harder and a much rarer commodity. Rav Leib Chasman refers to this Amida as someone who is moda al someone who can admit the truth, admit when they were wrong. Chaim Shmulevitz refers to this Amida as someone who is mekabel achrayus, someone who accepts responsibility. But in our context and for our purposes, basically they are saying the exact same thing in different words. And that is, it's incredibly hard to admit your mistake. It's incredibly hard to take responsibilities for mistakes. But if you do so, that's in fact incredible. And that's truly what a good person, let alone a great person, and let alone a leader, must do. It's interesting, as a support, Rav Chaim points out that the Navi in the second paragraph of Yirmiyahu criticizes the people for mishandling the poor. They didn't take care of the poor in their generation. In fact, some people died as a, responsible, as a result. In the next passage, we are told that the Jewish people claimed that they were innocent. And Hashem says, I will judge you harshly. Why? Nishparotach al-amreich lochatasi. More even than the damage they did was the fact that they couldn't admit their mistake. Amre lochatasi, they couldn't admit their mistake. What Yehuda did is an inspiration role model to us. He accepted responsibility, he admitted his mistake, and that's incredibly important. The story of Yehuda and Tamar is, of course, incredible and one of the most dramatic and amazing stories, certainly in all of Boratius. The great leader thinks he's consorting with a harlot. It turns out it's his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who believes that she is owed Yibum by her father-in-law. She conceives from the intimate union, father-in-law not realizing what had happened, assumes that she has acted inappropriately, has been immoral, and therefore condemns her to death. And as the story climaxes, as she's being taken out to her death, she sends words to her father-in-law and says, Whoever owns these things, that is who I was intimate with. That is who the father is of my unborn child. The Tomer, and she says, Hakerna, whoever it is, should recognize. Lemi, who do these belong to? 
Hachotemes, the signet ring, Hapsilim, this uh, wrap, Vehamateha and this staff. In other words, from that union, she had kept some of the personal items of the man she had been intimate with from Yehuda. And of course, the Torah tells us in a great act of personal integrity, despite the embarrassment and shame, Yehuda owns up to the hint. Only he realizes this is his. He owns up to his action. He accepts responsibility. And Tamar is saved from death. However, as Rashi notes, something incredible is really going on. She was about to be killed. She was about to be put to death. And even then, she would not publicly name Yehuda as the father of her child. She hinted at it. And she was totally subject to Yehuda's decision. Would he reveal himself as the true father, having taken the hint? Or would he protect his own shame and avoiding shame and protect his own reputation and let her go to her death? Rashi, commenting based on the Gemara, says, We see from this an incredible teaching. Mikan Amru, from here our rabbis teach, From here we learn that it is better to allow yourself to be thrown into a fiery furnace. It is better to die rather than embarrass someone in public. Had Tamar just come out and named Yehuda, had accused him of fathering her child, Yehuda obviously would have been humiliated. She was willing to die rather than to humiliate Yehuda. From here we learn this incredible teaching, better to be thrown into the fiery furnace rather than to embarrass someone. And of course, this is a very, very striking formulation from Chazal, underscoring just how terrible it is to embarrass someone. Later on in one of the parallel Gemaras that discusses this, the Gemara of Metziah, Daf Nuntes, it mentions similar examples of where David HaMelech was embarrassed publicly. And it says that anyone who does that lost or loses their Olam Haba, their life in the afterworld. They lose their merit in the ability to have an afterlife in Olam Haba. So it's better to be burnt alive than to embarrass someone. If you do that, you lose your Olam Haba. These are incredibly strong, one might even say hyperbolic statements. Why would Chazal consider embarrassing someone just so bad, so severe? So the Gemara in Bamatsiya there tells us, Says the Gemara, you know why? Because basically to embarrass someone is tantamount to murder. And the Gemara goes on to even describe or ascribe a biological uh, confirmation of this. That when a person is shamed, we know that the blood rushes from their face, they look pale, right? they get embarrassed, some people get white, some people get red, but there's a, you know, a biological uh, reaction, so to speak, with the blood and the color of one's face. And that is symbolic, says the Gemara, of a person really being killed. It's ki'ilu shofech damim. Wow. So, on one hand, we understand the previous two statements of Chazal, why it's so severe. On the other hand, this itself is really hard to understand. What makes it like murder? Why is it, you know, do we really, really mean that? So the truth is that, at minimum, we could say it's prohibited. Everything we've seen until now has kind of taken that for granted and just talked about not only why it's prohibited, but how bad it is. But the truth is, we shouldn't take it for granted. In fact, it is assumed to be a mitzvah doraisa or a prohibition from the Torah not to embarrass somebody and the poskim assume that the source is actually the pasuk in Vayikra, Perak Yotes where you're actually legitimately allowed in certain cases to rebuke another person but even then, even when a person has done wrong and you're rebuking them you shouldn't bear a certain iniquity while you do that, and Chazal understand that means don't embarrass the person while you are giving them even deserved rebuke and 
correction. The Mishnah in Perkyavos and Perkimel and many others specifically talk about Malbim Pnechavero Berabim, as Rashi had done uh, in our Parsha, that there's something particularly egregious about embarrassing someone in public. Although it is worth noting that the Rambam in Hilchos Deos in Perigvav, when he brings down this prohibition, after quoting the previous sources, he says, Mikan which sounds like he's saying it's usher even in private, even to be embarrassed in front of just one person who's doing the embarrassing is a horrible indignity. Although more so, it's much worse, and these extra statements of, you know, it's like murder, and better you should throw, you know, go into the furnace, that certainly seems to be limited to the public humiliation. But even private embarrassment of a person is considered a grievous sin. Interestingly, with all of this, you know, very dramatic statements in Chazal, there is clearly a machloket in Rishonim how literally to take this. And perhaps our intuition is that this is just, you know, rabbinic hyperbole and it doesn't really mean it. And in fact, that is the opinion of a number of Rishonim, including the Me'iri and the Sefer Achinuch. But really, one would perhaps be surprised to learn that many other Rishonim seem to take this very literally, including perhaps Tosvos and Rabbeinu Yonah, who seem to think that literally, if you embarrass someone in public, we view it halachically as if you killed him. And in fact, there's a number of halachic discussions which revolve around exactly this question. Roshlom Zaman Orbach was asked, could you be Mechalel Shabbos in order to avoid embarrassing someone, saving someone from embarrassment? We know you're allowed to be Mechal Shabbos to save someone's life, Pikuach Nefesh. Would we even say the same thing to avoid embarrassing someone? Or um, there's a halacha that a Kohen who killed somebody is not allowed to go up for the duchening. So another contemporary scholar, the Lahoros Nassan, wonders if a Kohen embarrassed someone else in public, perhaps he should be disqualified himself from going up to duchen. And other similar halachic discussions, and whatever the conclusion is, the very fact that halacha even raises these questions highlights just how seriously we take the prohibition of embarrassing other people in public.